Um, this theme of worship is so many different things. There's another act of worship that we can do, which is called intercession, where we pray for somebody else or pray for other people. And um, we, if you follow world events and stuff, we know that there's a potential powder keg going on in the Ukraine. And our government has issued, told everybody to get out, all Americans to get out in the next 48 hours because they, they feel it's an imminent invasion. You know, only we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but that's, that's the thing that's gone out there. Well, we have, uh, some of you know Jim and Lori Sliz, who uh, were in the community for years. They've been invested in mission work in the Ukraine for a long time, for years and years and years. And um, they are living in the Ukraine. Um, they have family here, and obviously that's a scary situation for family. Um, and I want to, and we're going to pray in a second, but I want to encourage you, not just this morning, but to keep, not just Jim and Lori in your prayers, but the people that they minister to, the church in the Ukraine, the missionaries in the Ukraine, all those situations. And we need to recognize God's still on the throne, and this can be, God needs to give each of those missionaries wisdom of what to do and how to handle that. And we need to recognize this can be fertile soil, fertile soil for the gospel to go forth in the Ukraine. So if you'll join me in prayer right now, and then you can be praying at other times too. Heavenly Father, we lift that situation in the Ukraine. And Lord, I guess you know what is happening unfolding better than our best intelligence, Lord. I pray for the church in the Ukraine, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray for their safekeeping. We pray that they, their faith would be strong, that they would look to you for safety and security, Lord, when all around them seems shaking. Lord, we pray for the missionaries, with Jim and Lori and others like them, Lord. We pray for their safety and their security and wisdom to know what to do. Lord, I pray that they would take whatever opportunities you give them and that they would hear in your heart something that would give them the comfort, the peace, and the strength to, to make whatever decisions they need to make, whether it's to stay or to go. But Lord, I pray that the cause of Christ would go forward in the midst of what could be a catastrophe. Lord, we pray that you would show your hand strong, that you are in charge, that you, Lord, will use any situation you can to further the kingdom of God. We pray for open hearts and minds in our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine, and those that don't know you yet, Lord, that the witness that maybe missionaries have given for years would come to fruition in this moment, in this time. We just pray. Lord, remind us to pray. Teach us what to pray. And help us to stand with our brothers and sisters across the world. In Jesus' name, amen. So whatever you need to do to remind yourself to pray for that, I would encourage you to do so. Whether it's a note on your phone, something on your refrigerator, um, just keep that in prayer. There's a lot, lot going on there. And it's not just Jim and Lori. We happen to know that, but their tip of the iceberg as far as many other missionaries there and let's go beyond that, not to be so Western-minded, but we have brothers and sisters who live there, and it's not an option to leave. And they're in danger, could be in danger. So just, just keep that in mind in prayer. Message this morning. <clears throat> There's a question up on the screen, how do you know if someone's saved? And maybe that will spark your attention, and maybe it will make you roll your eyes. I don't know which one it is, so just bear with me on that. Um, I want to start out with saying this, though, as we move forward into this message, that um, as Americans, and actually it's the West in general, we are, and I think Americans are really good at this, um, we're very result-oriented. Um, 
What does that mean, being result-oriented? We love to keep score, whether it's sporting events or just in life. We like to keep score with things. We like to have things that have quantifiable results that you can take a hard look at it and know whether or not it's been successful or unsuccessful, whether it's accomplished or not accomplished, whether it's finished or not finished. We stress in, in our culture is very much, or it used to be, maybe it's changing some, but it's still deeply rooted, that we stress the evaluation of effectiveness. We don't want to leave that for guesswork. We want to know whether something's been effective, and we want to find ways to evaluate it. And, and Americans really like to check boxes, to know that we go check, 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 done. And it makes us feel good. We desire concrete, cut-and-dried, observable entities, and we get very concerned or squirrely when it's fuzzy and not sure and unclear. Now, as a culture and as a country, that served us really well. It really has. Um, it's actually one of the things that's driven our nation to be what it is, is some of those very characteristics. Now, I'm not saying in and of themselves they're wrong or bad. But I do want to say this this morning. The, the fixation on results and our, 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 our goals and objectives to quantify things and to keep score and to make sure that we can evaluate has crept into the way Christians view the purpose of the church. Okay? We have been for... Boy, I lose track of time. It's been over, over a year now. Yeah, over a year now that we have been talking about the Great Commission and the purpose of the church and then what we believe building onto that. And you go way back a year ago and we were talking about the Great Commission and teaching on that, which you can go on onto our YouTube channel on the website and find these messages that go way back, go back into January and February of last year. We were talking about Great Commission. And the idea here, the Great Commission, Jesus' words himself as he was leaving the earth, made it absolutely clear what the commission or what the purpose or what the job of the church is, what the job of a Christian is, and that's to make disciples, to reproduce themselves, to make followers of Christ. And what's happened in that is the church culture in America specifically, but it's, it's fairly worldwide. Maybe it's not it's probably pronounced in other places because America historically has been a sending place. It sends people over to other places than that. But let's just leave it here. We've developed as Americans all kinds of programs to do the Great Commission. Nothing wrong with that either. All kinds of methods, all kinds of processes. The, what we just saw a video of is, is, is huge. The, the Operation Christmas Child is a method to accomplish the Great Commission. To be able to send the gospel to a place that, I may, that I'll never see, a person I would never talk to, but by serving and financial things and, and gathering as a church and doing that, we can have a part in sending the good news to other people. Now, the other thing that's happened, though, being good Americans, we're driven to find ways to measure how successful we are in accomplishing the Great Commission. That's just the American way of doing things. Um, and I'm not sure it's always the great thing, and that's where this message goes today. We keep score, even when it comes to the Great Commission. We ask questions sometimes. How many people have we led to Christ? How many, how many people have been converted? How many people have gotten saved? How many people have we led or are we working at leading to be disciples of Jesus Christ? But I ask a bigger question. How do we keep score? 
how do you keep score? Which goes back to that first question is, how do you know if someone's saved? How do you know the answer to that question? How do you know if someone's saved? How do you know if a person that you're talking to, that you've been praying for, is saved or is, is walking in relationship with God or is fit for heaven? How, how do you know that? We have a tendency, because of our humanity, that we want that question and answered in such a way that it's concrete and quantifiable. A criterion that can be recorded so that we can know that somebody is saved. That boxes that can be checked to know that we've done our part to lead a person to Christ. Okay? But I ask the question again, how do we accurately answer the question that's up on the, on the wall? How do you know if someone's actually saved and is right with God. Now, I'm going to bring another thing in, and I realize that I'm going to walk on some real dangerous ice this morning. Uh, the sinner's prayer. Thought about this. This has been a message. Actually, it's a couple. It'll be at least next week and maybe the week after. We'll see where next week goes. But this idea of, of this came to my mind, and you'll hear as we go through to put the whole thing together. But now, not, we're not changing directions. We're, this is along that same line, that whole quantifiable thing, the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer has been the gold standard for American evangelism for a long time, for years and years. Okay? Um, and what's that sinner's prayer? That's where, you know, the, 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 you go to a crusader event or a person will put a tool in your hand where you have this prayer, just, just, just have the person repeat this prayer after you, okay? Uh, you share the gospel with somebody, whether it be many people at once or one-on-one with somebody, and then you lead the person in the, the sinner's prayer, asking Jesus to be their Lord and Savior, and then they're saved. That's been the gold standard of American evangelism for years, that, that you, 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 you share the gospel, you lead the person in prayer, done deal. We love that, you know why? Because it's quantifiable, and it's easy to check the boxes. But is it biblical? Is it biblical? The sinner's prayer does not occur anywhere in all Scripture. You'll not find, do a Google search on the sinner's prayer in the Bible, and you won't find it. You might find some related stories, but it's not a biblical standard. It's not even a biblical test. Okay? It's not that the sinner's prayer is doctrinally incorrect. Actually, it's just the opposite. The content of the sinner's prayer, you say, I don't even know what the sinner's prayer is. you got homework then. You go home and just Google sinner's prayer and you'll get a long list of different versions of that prayer. You read those and you will find, if you know what it says in your Bible, that actually, doctrinally speaking, the theology behind the sinner's prayer, what it states and what a person is praying, is very accurate. Asking Jesus for forgiveness of sin, acknowledging that we're sinners, asking him to come in and forgiveness is very biblically correct. But does praying that prayer save somebody? I'm going back to the question again. How can we know if someone is saved? And now I'm going to put a point out there. There's probably two ways that you look at that question. 
how do I know if I'm saved? Okay? And that, depending on where you're at. But then the other one is, how do I know if the person I've been sharing with and praying for and doing all these things with, if they're saved? I'll, 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 like I said, I'm going to walk on some dangerous sites and step on toes in a big way, but as I was thinking about this message, I think sometimes this whole idea of sinner's prayer and quantifiable and even answering the questions is so that I'm off the hook. That when I am working with somebody and I'm sharing the gospel and I'm trying to help someone walk as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I would really like it neat and tidy with boxes to check, including the sinner's prayer, so that I know that I've done all that I can do and feel like I'm okay. And you notice the big words in there is I, 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 I. And what is it really about? It's not about me in that situation. It's about the other person in walking in relationship with God. Okay? So, as I was thinking about this whole thing there, in the whole package deal, the question came up, and almost immediately I felt the Lord saying, go into the Scriptures and find about where Jesus talks about salvation. Where He says it in His interactions with people. And see what we can glean from that. Instead of, I'm not asking you this morning to throw out the whole concept of ever using the sinner's prayer. That's not what I'm saying at all. But it's back to that question again. What does the scriptures tell us about what it takes for someone to be saved? Okay? And so, these what I share now going forward and then even next week at least and maybe the week after depending on how many stories I, can, I come up with or feel the Lord's leading in, it's kind of like some of our along the way stories. Some of you really like those kinds of messages. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to uh, take a look at Luke 19, 1 through 10. If you have your Bible, you can turn to that. It's a little long to put up on the screen, so I'm just going to read it for you. But you can listen or you can turn to your Bible or take a note, whatever. This is the story of a man called Zacchaeus. And to be honest with you, how did I come across this as I'm contemplating it? It's interesting how this all happened. I've been thinking about this message. This is a month ago, a month and a half ago, and I was thinking about this whole idea, and I was thinking, doesn't it say in the story of Zacchaeus, doesn't Jesus say something about salvation in the midst of that in his interaction with Zacchaeus? And you know the interesting thing? That was like one day I was thinking about it one day, and then thinking about it overnight, and I got up, and I actually happened to be a little bit behind in my Bible reading program. I happened that morning, was I, this is all churning in my mind, guess what happened to be in my Bible reading that morning that I was behind on, on that timing, was the story of Zacchaeus. Okay, so let's look at uh, Z, uh, not Zacchaeus, uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he couldn't because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this home, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek 
and to save what was lost. So let's take a quick look here. This is actually should be a regular habit in my life and in your life. When we have these big questions, it's not necessarily just to take hook, line, and sinker what the established church has said or what somebody else says, even if it's widely accepted. Let's go and see what the scriptures have to say and find out if these things match up or not. Okay? So let's take a look, let's break this apart a little bit. First thing, Jesus was just passing through. He was going from one place to another, which we get at the beginning of the narrative. He didn't have an appointment set at 10 o'clock with Zacchaeus. He was going from here to there. This happened, this whole story happens along the way while Jesus is going from this place, heading over to that place. God knew that Zacchaeus was going to be there, and he saw to it that Jesus would be at the right place at the right time to encounter this man. Okay, There's a great lesson in that for you and I. Your best interactions with other people sometimes are going to be something that occurs on the way as you're going from here to there, but God knows that between here and there there's a person, a person that's ripe to hear the good news of Jesus Christ or to be shown the love of Christ. And he'll see to it that you get to the right place at the right time. Second thing, Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. He wasn't by chance there. He wanted to see Jesus. Perhaps, we don't know why, but perhaps he had heard of this Jesus and all that he'd been doing. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that he really wanted to see Jesus with his own eyes. He was drawn to the presence of this guy. Without having met him, but what he had heard, there's something inside Zacchaeus. He's drawn to the presence of Jesus. Now, because he was short, he climbed a tree so that he'd be able to see over the crowd. That's the heart of somebody that not only do I want to see him, I do not want to miss the opportunity to lay eyes on this guy. So I'm going to do whatever I can do. I can't see over the crowd. So he comes up with a solution so that he will definitely be able to see Jesus when he comes. So he climbs a tree. He's above. He can see. Okay? Jesus saw Zacchaeus and sought him out in the end. He comes up to Jesus, or he comes up to Zacchaeus as he's walking by, and he stops at that tree, and he says, I need to spend time with you today, basically paraphrase. I need to spend time with you, Zacchaeus, today. I believe that Jesus in that moment sensed that what was in Zacchaeus' heart. He sensed that Zacchaeus had a desire not just to see Jesus, but also to know who he was and what this was all about. And he gave Zacchaeus the opportunity to actually spend time with him. Now, Zacchaeus is a sinner. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. He is a sinner. He's a tax collector. And I realize culturally at the time for the Jewish people, he was a hated man, and they would have said he's a sinner. But it was more than that. It wasn't just because he was doing the taboo thing of collecting taxes for the Romans, overcharging and cheating and all those things there. He... He, he was doing all of those things, and regardless of what the Jewish people felt about him, deep down inside, what he was doing was wrong, and he was aware of it. He was a sinner. He got rich 
by overcharging his Jewish brethren when collecting taxes by their occupying country. It doesn't get much worse than that as far as how people would view you, but beyond that, what he was doing was wrong. Now, how about the unknown part? You come to these stories, and then there are things that we don't know because the Scripture doesn't tell us. We have no idea what the interaction, aside from when Jesus says, I need to come to your house today, and then when the narrative picks up a little later, there's the, the, he comes, Jesus comes to Zacchaeus' house, and Zacchaeus has invited other people there, but we have no idea what that interaction, what that time with that group of people in Jesus looked like. We have no idea what Jesus said. We don't know if there was a prayer prayed. We don't know if there was a formal commitment made, if there was a formal confession that I'm a sinner, that I need this or that. We have none of that stuff is listed. And it's sometimes the things that aren't listed are just as important as the things that are. My dad always was pastor before I was, the guy that usually sits right there who's probably sitting right there at a church in South Carolina right now. He always said that if we really needed to know, God would have told us. So the things that are not there really are not all that important. Because God always tells us what we need to know in these situations. Now, that's the unknown part. What do we know, though? The known part from the narrative. What we do know is that day even after he chose to get in the tree, but it starts with a decision and a choice to get in a tree so he's guaranteed to see Jesus. We do know that Zacchaeus made a decision. He made a decision to put himself in a place where he could see Jesus, and then after whatever that interaction with Jesus looked like in his home with all those people, we do know this from the narrative absolutely clearly, that he made a decision to change the way that he was living his life. And it's very clear, he says, he just, out of the blue, we don't know how it got to this spot, but he just stands up, he says, Jesus. What does he say? I'll read it to you. Lord, Jesus, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. He was a rich man, he just, he just makes a statement. He makes a decision to change the way he was going to live. And part of that meant, I'm going to give half of what I have away. Then the other thing he says, I'm also, for anyone that I'm, I've cheated over the years, that I've taken more money than I was supposed to, I'm going to pay them back four times the amount. Something happened in Zacchaeus that drove him to do some radical things. We don't know exactly what that was. We don't know. Um, we'll get in a minute more. Maybe we do know a little bit more from the rest of Scripture what happened. But the clear thing was, whatever happened to Zacchaeus that went on there drove him to action. Now it's interesting what Jesus' response to that is. Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house. And what Jesus is declaring there is that today, today, Zacchaeus has been saved. He uses the word salvation. 
That was the important thing for me to find in this passage, is that Jesus actually said, today, salvation has come to this house. He's saying, today, Zacchaeus, using our 21st century, today, Zacchaeus was saved. So there's a lot in that. So how does a person get saved? How do you know if a person gets saved? Well, Jesus said that happened that day, right there. Jesus is declaring it didn't happen yesterday, it does not happen tomorrow, but it happened today. His declaration is in response to something. It's in response to what he observed in Zacchaeus that day. And the only thing that we know that Jesus observed, we don't know their conversation, we don't know if there was a prayer, we don't know if Jesus preached a sermon, we know none of that. But we do know that Zacchaeus made some decisions and acted on those decisions. And Jesus' response appears to be a declaration made from what he observed in the actions of Zacchaeus' life. The actions that, that Jesus saw seem to have come from a change in Zacchaeus' heart. I don't believe, in fact, I, I can pretty much guarantee you, Zacchaeus didn't decide to give away all half of his possessions and then pay time four times the amount for the people who've cheated because he had this cooked up great intellectual thought. The dude was wealthy. All he cared about was money up until this point. He was willing to do anything to get it. And you say, you just have to read culturally what it meant to be a tax collector. And so he wanted money in a bad way. You just do some researching culturally and you'll come, you'll, you'll say, yeah, he, he was... And a person that really wants to get wealthy doesn't decide in an intellectual moment that I'm going to give half of it away. No, they find out creative ways, maybe a tenth of it, and then I'm going to invest the rest, and then I'll give God 10% of whatever. I, you know what I'm saying? We can bargain that. No, he says, I'm going to give half of it away, and then four times what I cheated, I'll give away as well. They seem to come, his, his actions seem to come from a choice or decision in that moment. At some point in that interaction, I need to change the way that I've been living. Now, Jesus goes on and says something else. This is probably easy to grab, a little easier to grab a hold of this idea, a, 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 a change in his heart and driving to an action that we can see in Jesus' response. But then Jesus says something else. Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house. And then he tacks on this, which really can muddy the water. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. Okay, now son of Abraham can be this spot where, you know, and even the listeners at that time would have heard son of Abraham, they would have said, I could translate it this way. What people heard, a lot of people heard that day was that Jesus said, because this man is a Jew or a Hebrew or one of God's chosen people, meaning blood, blood Israelite, that's why he was saved. But I'm going to tell you, that is not what Jesus meant when this came out of his mouth. Okay? Like I said, it can sound like Zacchaeus' salvation was because he was Jewish, but that's not what it meant. And this is where it's so important that you and I gain insights to the whole Bible, specifically what all the New Testament says, and how do you get that? By reading it. Because as I'm going through there, I would love to not have to talk about this phrase because it muddies the water from this idea of action. A changed heart in action. But as I sat there thinking about it, what was Jesus saying? Why did he tack that on there? Because he wasn't trying to make it confusing. 
But there's an awful lot in the New Testament about this idea of being one of God's children, a chosen one, or a Jew. Okay? Now, we can get this insight of what Jesus was saying just simply by looking at a couple other passages from the New Testament. Okay? First one I'm going to take you to is in Romans. Romans chapter 2. Listen to this. Now again, Scripture is what? You can see it over there? All Scripture is what? God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correction, and training in righteousness. When we say it's God-breathed, when these guys wrote, God was inspiring them by His Holy Spirit to write down things that, that were God's truth. So when we come to Romans, the guy that writes this is actually under the inspiration of the Spirit as he's writing to the Roman church and he's telling them things that God has laid on his heart that God was trying to tell them. So we can say this is as if God was saying it. Okay? It says this, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Okay? And another one, in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist says this. He's got people, John the Baptist, the precursor, of the, the, the forerunner of Jesus, preparing the way for the Messiah to come. John the Baptist is out there, and he starts preaching out in the wilderness, and people are flocking to come because... This guy actually is speaking with conviction, and it's things he's saying, you know, prepare the way, the Messiah is coming, and everybody's excited and coming. And then John gets up this one day, and he is just letting them have it. And he actually says, you know, who warned you, you brood of vipers, to come? And isn't that a great way when people actually are coming because they want to hear what you have to say, and you accuse them of being a bunch of snakes? And then he says this, who warned you to come? And then he goes on and says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. And that's a mouthful again, and it's tied right into what Jesus said, because Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because this man also is a son of Abraham. All right? So how can you say that, that it's saying that it's not a Jew or, or that... That, that, that he's saying, and John's saying, being a Jew or not being a Jew is not a big deal because Jesus could make, God could make Jews or Hebrews out of the stones if he so wanted to. I'm going to say this. I think the scripture clearly states this. Being one of God's chosen people is not because of human bloodline, but because of the condition of one's heart. The common thread in those different things there are a changed heart and the actions that follow a changed heart. Now, don't get me wrong. If you read the entirety of this scripture, you cannot get past the fact that the Israelites, the Jewish people, the Hebrews were and even are still God's chosen people. God's not done with Hebrews and Israelites yet. Even though that their heart is way away from them, they rejected the Christ, God still has a plan for them. But at the same time, he's also said in other places in Scripture that because of their straying and rejecting of Jesus, he has grafted in those that weren't chosen to be as if they are chosen because they've accepted Christ. That includes me and you. All right? 
The Israelites were God's chosen people. He actually calls them his own. They were the ones that Jesus would come from. Jesus was a Jew, was a Hebrew. But it's interesting. But being a Jew by blood was not enough to be right with God. And if you read one thing, and that's one of the biggest things that got Jesus into trouble, is that he was saying that you being a teacher of the law, or you being an expert in the law, or you being a faithful temple attender and worshiping the Old Testament way is not enough to be in right relationship with God. It was not enough. It was not about being a Jew or being a good Jew. That's what the Jews of Jesus' day thought. But Jesus' statement was alluding to what a true, true, true Jew was. Children of Abraham. Abraham was the father, the, pre, the, the first of the generations of the Jews. So it says, son of Abraham is talking about a Jew again. Now, get this. If you read through your scriptures, especially the New Testament, it's made over and over again. God wasn't looking for more blood, lineal Jews, Hebrews, that were born that way. No, he wasn't looking for that. What he was looking for is what one of the passages read are true Jews, people that are Jews on the inside, not on the outside. Those that have what? And if you read that thread again, a true Jew who is one inwardly, who not circumcised in their flesh on the outside, but circumcised where? Key thing, in the heart. Okay? John the Baptist makes that statement as if God were making it. That, you know, God could make, what it, he could make blood-related Jews out of stones if he wanted to. It's not a big deal. What he's really looking for are those who have a changed heart. A true Jew, a true Jew is determined by the condition of the heart. Not because of physical circumcision. I've spent time before the Lord wondering of all things for you to set your chosen people in the Old Testament apart. Why in the world did you choose that? And I even hate to say this, but even to talk about it, and I'm going to say this and you're all going to laugh, it's a sensitive subject. Circumcision. It makes you squirm. Why did God choose that? He's trying to get our attention. It wasn't that. There may have been some physiological things that helped the Jews and all that stuff being circumcised, but he used something pretty darn radical. And when God does something radical, it usually comes with because he's trying to get my thick head and your thick head to see something. You can't pick a more sensitive place to cut than that. You can't. He's trying to get at something here. The interesting thing, a Jew wasn't a Jew even then because of the circumcised physical ceremony they went through. And they weren't a Jew because they were born that way. The true Jew was a true Jew because of a circumcised heart. And you can even find that talked about in the Old Testament. You don't have to go to New Testament to find that. You can go in the Old Testament before Jesus even shows up on the scene about the importance of a circumcised, sensitive heart. Having your heart cut 
or pricked by God's truth and the Holy Spirit is what makes you truly chosen by God. Having a sensitized heart. And I'm not going to go into, I, I, just, I probably should, but I, I just can't do it because it's too uncomfortable to even talk about. But there are a lot with this idea of what happens in physical circumcision and going through the excruciating pain in a sensitive area to make it even more sensitive afterwards for lots of different reasons. And God's simply saying there is, I need to cut the flesh away from your heart. It needs to be cut away so your heart will be sensitive to the things of God. Having your heart cut or pricked by God's truth and the Holy Spirit, which sensitizes that heart. Having a heart now that hears God's truth, one that responds to the drawing and the instruction of His Holy Spirit. Uh, having a heart that drives you to an act of obedience to God's instruction. Do you know what happened to Zacchaeus that day? He was already circumcised in his flesh. He was a Jew, even though he wasn't a good Jew. He was a Jew. But on that day, his heart was circumcised. The things that had calloused his heart to be, do something as bad as robbing from his own people to get rich and thinking he was okay because he was a Jew, on that day... The truth, the presence of Jesus, whatever. I don't know what it was, but something cut that stuff away from his heart. And in that moment, his heart was soft and sensitized, and he realized the way he was living. He says, I need to change. And so his initial reaction was, I need to get rid of some of this wealth because it's got whatever. And he goes through and does that. But you know what? I'm convinced that Zacchaeus didn't stop changing that day. There were other things, I'm sure, that aren't listed here that in his ongoing walk with God, he continued to change and do different things. I'm going to tell you this morning, back, how does a person get saved? What does that look like? Salvation occurs in a person who has a changed heart. It's not what they say. And it's not what they tell you, and it's not always what you look at. Salvation occurs when a heart is changed. When a person has been convicted in their heart. Look at Acts chapter 2. Day of Pentecost, Spirit falls, Jesus has gone to be to heaven. And Peter... This, when the Spirit falls, you've got this miraculous stuff that occurs, and it's an uproar, and everybody's, what is going on? And Peter starts explaining what just happened, but it leads to him sharing about Jesus and forgiveness of sin and those things. And it says, when the people heard the message that day, look what it says, they were what? Cut to the heart. Do you see the, 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 the link in the different passages we've looked at? On this day, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, and I love this passage because they interrupted him mid-sermon. They were cut to the heart, knew they needed to act on it, saying, what do we need to do? What should we do in response to this? You see how, how they were compelled. It wasn't enough to know that they needed to change they were desperate to know how they should change and what they should do. They were cut to the heart. Their hearts had been cut and pierced with God's truth. Their hearts had been hit and cut by the draw of the Spirit of God. 
when they were pushed to what they must do. They couldn't, they realized in what they had just experienced and that sensitized heart knew that they could not stay the same. Look at Peter's reply to them. Peter replied to them in their response, what shall we do? And he said, very simple, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Did Peter stop right there and said, pray this prayer. Repeat this prayer after me. That's what you need to do. He didn't say that. He looked at him and he said, you all need to repent and be baptized. What did he mean? You can say again, Peter is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so this is as if God was answering their question. What shall we do? This, their hearts were cut. We need to act. What do we need to do? And he says, repent and be baptized. What was repentance? Repentance was the action that was required. What repentance is, he was basically saying, leave your old way of life. Don't live the same way anymore. Pursue a life now of obedience to God. It was definitely action-based. The response to the cut heart was action-based. There's things that they would do, which is, your life is not going to look the same after this. It shouldn't. You need to be different. You need to change. You need to walk in obedience to God. And then he throws this in there. Repent. And then he said, and be baptized. He didn't say, be baptized if you want to, or be baptized when it's convenient. He said, repent and be baptized. Now what's the baptism? Baptism is that formal ceremony that they did then, and we still do now, a formal declaration, a public confession, a public declaration of your commitment to be a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. And I put this together to use some, some, some terminology. It's not in the scriptures, but it's a good, for, good, 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 good word. Sometimes you can take that repent and be baptized. Let's call it lordship. It's making a public declaration that I am going to serve God for the rest of my life and going through the baptism ceremony as a declaration of that. And this repentance is, is placing Jesus in control of your life to obey his followings, his, his teachings, and recognizing, I don't know it all. I don't know it all. And, and if you look at scriptures, when they had these conversion experiences that happened, they were saying, because these, on the day of Pentecost, these were Jews from all over the then civilized world that were there, who actually were there to worship the one true Jehovah God on that day. It was a Jewish festival. So we're not talking about people that didn't know God. We're talking about people who did know God, but in the midst of it, isn't it interesting? They thought they knew God. They thought they were worshiping Him. They thought that He was pleased with them. And then all of a sudden, their hearts are cut. Cut to the quick. And they're saying, what do we need to do to change? And the response is, repent and be baptized. In other words, stop living the way you have and thinking that you're going to be okay because you follow Jewish principles and start being obedient to the full gospel of what Jesus says what God says. Just praying a prayer for forgiveness alone is not mentioned in any of the accounts I've read to you this morning. Not one of them. Where the guy, in answering their heart's cry, said, just pray this prayer. So, how do you know if a person's been saved? 
Now is when you're all expecting me to tie it up in a nice, neat little bow, and that's not going to happen this morning. You can't quantify. You cannot quantify the answer to that question by checking boxes or making a checklist. The moment that we do that, we're off track. You cannot do it. Because the answer to that question, how does a person, how do you know if a person is saved? How is a person saved? Because it requires a change of the heart. And I don't know about you, but I can't see your heart and you can't see my heart directly. Can't happen. Is there anybody that can see your heart? God can. I mean, we'll get that scripture next week. Okay? Your heart, deep inside of you, and you know what the definition of the heart is? Not the part that goes thump, 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 or that makes you love because it's Valentine's Day tomorrow and all that stuff there. No, the heart that they're talking about is the place where your affections and your emotions that drives you to action. Your heart is the place that drives your actions. How does a person get saved? The part that drives their actions goes through drastic change and is sensitized in a place that nobody but God sees. And the only other person is, you and I don't even know our own heart sometimes, but we're able to know what's really in our heart when we let everybody else see something else. I'm going to tell you that the change of heart that we've talked about this morning in each of these situations, that change of heart, ready? Having a heart that's changed, that's cut to the quick, that's truly been impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by His truth and by the Holy Spirit, that change of heart will always, big word, always, will always bring about a change of action. That's why Jesus was able to say about Zacchaeus, Two things are listed in there, even though the second one's maybe shrouded and you have to do a little studying to get there. Because he's a child of Abraham. Not because he was bloodline, but because he had had a circumcised heart that had just occurred. He had a change of heart. And what? He showed action. And using John's word, he showed fruit in keeping with repentance. You say, well, how do you know that? Go back again. It would be like saying Bill Gates tells Jesus one day, I'm going to give half of what I have to the poor. No strings attached. Not to build foundations, not to build buildings, but just take it and give it away. And anybody that I've cheated over the years, you give four times as much away. Wealthy people don't do that. They won't do that unless what? There's a drastic change of heart. Change of heart will always bring action. It will always include a leaving of the things that are not of God that are in their life. And a running after the things that are God. All, a change, the change of heart will always have an overwhelming drive to be obedient to God's truth and His instruction. There will be a new hunger, a new compelled life that has to be obedient and is so desperate to be obedient will do whatever it can to be instructed in what God wants. An overwhelming drive to live a life that's pleasing to God. There's this desire that I've lived so long my own way, I need to be pleasing to God and we'll do whatever it takes to find out what it is that God's looking for. Do you notice the questions? What do I need to do? What do I need to do to be saved? 
We call those actions fruit. Again, some more words of Jesus. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Right there, it's got some great answers. How do you know if someone's saved? Only those that do the will of the Father. Not those that necessarily, Lord, Lord, or whatever else. There's many passages in the New Testament that talk about that too. Not everyone is Lord, Lord. Some people on the day of judgment can say, well, we did this and we did this in your name. And they'll say, depart, I never knew you. Because their heart was never changed. It's this idea of the fruit in keeping with repentance that comes from a changed heart. I want to tell you this morning, being a disciple of Jesus, going right back to the beginning, what is the Great Commission to make disciples of Jesus Christ? What's God looking for for you and I to be disciples of Jesus Christ? And I'm going to tell you that being a disciple of Jesus Christ is a process. It's a journey. It isn't a one-time decision. It's not praying a prayer one time and then I'm a disciple and game over. No, it's a lot more than that. It's a process. It's a lifestyle that's lived over time. You and I need to share the truth with people. We need to encourage people to make decisions to follow God. Those are the right things to do. But then there's a fact that as we talk to them, we need to let God do the work in their heart. You and I can't prick that heart. We can't circumcise the heart. We can't bring the change of heart. But we can bring people into a spot where they hear the truth and in the presence of Jesus Christ so the heart change can occur. We need to let God lead those people on a journey of repentance. Not rushing. Not being in a hurry. In fact, closing and shutting our mouths to not be in such a big hurry to declare, there, now you're saved. Actually, there should be some tension left in that. And I know this, I do believe that you and I personally can be confident that we're headed for heaven. But we need to be careful because the pattern has been set by the good old American evangelistic movement of praying a sinner's prayer and unfortunately has led many people to believe that they're okay when they're really not okay. Because the Bible doesn't say it's done by praying a prayer. It's by a cut circumcised, sensitized heart that's followed always by action. Jesus said it after Zacchaeus did what? Had some actions and some fruit in keeping with repentance. He says salvation came today. We're going to look at some other examples of this next week. I actually, uh, Fred actually during the Sunday school had us watching that something needs to change and it was the guy trekking through Nepal and and talking about a lot of issues like that. I actually watched a video of him this week, and he was talking with another church leader. I don't know who it was. didn't matter. But they were having a conversation about the idea of sinner's prayer. The, the person he asked the question of said the same thing. Sinner's prayer is doctrinally sound. It, the, the truth that's in there is biblical stuff. But he said, in the way that we've used that prayer over the years, he said, we have given people a lot of times false security and a false sense of being okay with God. He said, we would do better at presenting the gospel, encouraging people to come to Christ for forgiveness of sin, but you don't leave them there. You have to leave space for God to work in their lives. He says, but then bring them to church. 
Introduce them to good teaching. Study the Bible with them. Do those things. And he says, I guarantee you that if their heart was truly pricked and truly sensitized as they're presented and ongoing over months and months and years of time, the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ and God's whole truth, they will act on it. Because the bottom line is it starts with that changed heart. And if you haven't a changed heart, you can try for a while to be obedient to the ways of God, but you're not going to be successful long-term at it. But I'm going to tell you, if you have a change of heart, even if you fall down a hundred times, you're going to get back up and you're compelled to be right with God and to follow after Him. You will have actions in keeping with repentance. I realize we, and I want to stress it again. We need to do all we can, not just to give people the good news of Jesus Christ, and you need, to, you need to come to Christ and ask for forgiveness of sins so you can go to heaven. We need to give them all the possible resources that we can come across that are going to help them to know what it means and examples and the truth about what a disciple of Jesus Christ actually walks out. Our job is not done the moment somebody says Christ. This guy that said that, he said, I had a person that, that met me for lunch one day, and I had been talking with them for a long time, and they came to me and said, I'm ready. You're ready for what? I'm ready to, to, to commit my life to Christ. I, what you've been saying, I'm ready to do that. And the guy looked him square in the eye and said, that sounds really good. That sounds really good. And I, I'm encouraged by what you're experiencing and what you're feeling. But he would not allow himself to go so far as to say, great, let's pray a prayer and you'll be done. He actually continued then to meet with that guy and, and, and take him to church and to go to places where he's going to hear the truth. And over time, the guy starts to act on what he's hearing, the good news of Christ and being obedient. And he said this, that when you do that, when you continue to bring a person along with you to receive teaching and study with them, if they have had a heart change, actions will come over time. I realize this is not clean, it's not tidy. It's anything but quantifiable, and it has no checklist. It's a changed heart, which you and I, we can't even trust our own heart. How in the world can I tell what's in your heart? A changed heart actions over time. You might say, Pastor, I've, I've been at funerals that you've been at where you boldly declare that someone's to heaven. Have you ever been to one I've been at where I have not said those words before? I've been at it before. I wouldn't say where that person is, but I'm not going to give false hope that a person's in heaven because I hear what Jesus said. I could say it about Vern Vanderwall. I could say it about Al Richter. I could say it about Norm Thomas because I saw those men for years bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the choices that they made were like Zacchaeus' choices. Nobody had their arm twisted. But they made choices that you don't make if there's not a change of heart. Not quantifiable. A changed heart, actions over time, and I remind you, I remind you what Jesus said. It's by their fruit that they'll be recognized. Not by the words or some prayer, it's by fruit over time that a person shows that they're right with God. Next week we're going to take a look at some other stories. 
because I've done a little bit, but let's go grab a couple more before we, you know. I'm not asking you to believe this because I said it today. I'm asking you to go into the Word of God and look at the examples, not taking one verse here and making a doctrine out of that, but looking at Jesus' interaction with people. And what did he say? And how did that work? We're going to take a look at a few more of those. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made a way for us to be right with you. We thank you that you have made it possible for us to be able to walk in the fullness of salvation. We thank you that you, you made a way for us to be forgiven of our sin that we couldn't do on our own. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you prick our hearts to actually want to help other people to, to experience and walk in what we have. Lord, help us to be okay with tension. Tension in ourselves and tension with others. Lord, help us to be biblically accurate. And I don't mean to saying that as an intellectual thing, but Lord, to be accurate to what you said and what you said the criterion is, which is a, a, a changed heart, a repentant heart, and the actions that follow and making a public confession of our faith. Lord, help us to do that in our own lives. And Lord, help us to be patient and go it with a long haul with the people in our lives that we work with, that they would be able to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Lord, we pray that the gospel would go forth, would bear fruit in our own lives, and would bear fruit in the lives of those that we reach out to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Jeff comes up, I just want to encourage you. Don't be afraid of the tension and time with a person. If the person's heart is truly changed, the actions will follow. And it's not your responsibility to be able to declare to somebody else that they're clearly saved or not saved. That's between them and the Lord in the end. And we do the best that we can of being obedient.